You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Dr. Brenda Allen, the 14th president of Lincoln University, the nation's first degree-granting historically black college from which she is also an alumna. Dr. Allen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. Now, tell us a little bit more about Lincoln University and about you. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? So, as you said, Lincoln University is the first degree-granting historically Black college in the nation. I think most importantly is that we were educating people of African descent a full decade before the emancipation of the race. We continue to offer a rigorous classical liberal arts education, been around for about 170 years, have some great alums who have made some really important strides in history, Thurgood Marshall, Langston Hughes, and I can go on and on. And so we're just very proud of our heritage and who we are today. That's amazing. 170 years, 10 years before the emancipation. Incredible. So with all of that, what is your favorite part of your job and why? My favorite part of the job is commencement, right? It's the most exciting day for students, for families, but to actually stand on stage and hand degrees to individuals who you have seen come through a four or five year journey, just totally ready for the world and to see how excited they are, how excited their families are, how excited the faculty and the rest of the community is for them is just the most wonderful part of the job. And so I look forward to it every year like to take a picture with all 450 plus students. It's just a great day. And it really is a culmination of all the work. And it tells us why we do what we do every day. I think that's one of the beautiful parts of academia is that there is a very, from the time you begin, there is a very clear light at the end of that tunnel. There's a, there's a clear finish line to cross. And within reason, you can plan for when to achieve it. So it's something to really look forward to, even from the very first step, which is not a, not, I don't know if if I would necessarily call it a luxury, but it's it's not something that everybody necessarily has the opportunity to look forward to with such mm-hmm. true clarity from step one. And to be able to do that, knowing that it's also so connected to your heritage must be just that much greater a step of pride. Yeah. So we try to introduce every student to the environment and let them know from the beginning that they are actually entering into becoming a part of a very, very rich heritage and legacy and really challenge everyone to try to figure out what legacy they'll leave behind as they journey through here. So it's just great. And you watch growth and it's just a wonderful time to see them emerge, ready to go out into the world and just do great things. So I look forward to it every year. I can only imagine. And I've I've crossed the stage, not at that university, not at Lincoln necessarily, but having crossed the stage a couple of times, it never gets old. There's something about that sense of completion, Mm -hmm. just knowing that you had your nose to the grindstone and managed to get through this. What a great experience of celebration. Now, in doing all of this, what is one of the big issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? 
Well, for a place like Lincoln University that is historically a liberal arts institution, the big debate in the country is about whether or not the liberal arts is still an approach to education that's meaningful. So we really moved to be in a country where we are very career focused. This generation of students really want to understand what they can do with their education. Costs a lot of money to be in school. So really trying to understand what the value added is really something that I think people want more clarity on. And so for us, we focus in on creating individuals who actually are strong intellectual and interpersonal folk who can actually go out in the world and be and become anything that they please. But that is sort of hard sell to parents who are paying a lot of money. They want to know what's going to happen to my child at the end. You know, if you major in English, what do you do with that? And so really talking to parents, families, and actually corporate heads about the importance of creating individuals who actually are good communicators, people who are able to write and speak in a persuasive way, individuals who are quantitatively literate, very good at problem solving, very good at critical reading, you can do anything, right? And so convincing not only the students, but also the workforce that if a corporation is looking for someone in sales, you don't have to be a business major to be a good salesperson. You have to be able to really convince people. And so what are the skill sets that are involved? And so what we try to do is is break those skill sets down for their importance to the world today, remind everyone that the jobs that our students will have four years from now, some of them don't even exist yet. And so we're trying to prepare people to be able to take advantage of an economic environment that's very dynamic, is rapidly changing, it's being fueled by science and technology. And the best way to do that is to create strong intellectuals. And so I pitched that story differently for different people, for alumni donors. I have to remind them what that education did for us and how many of us are just doing things that we never thought we can do when we were here in careers that, you know, just emerge, right? But that we had the capability to be able to take advantage of that because of the kind of education we received. And then in talking to donors and families, it's really getting them to understand that these are going to be the skills that will withstand the test of time. And that it doesn't matter if your child wants to major in music, they may love it. And that's great because in that passion, they're able to really dig in and learn the critical skills. They'll be writing, they'll be reading, they'll be performing, they'll be working with people. And those are all the job skills that I think today's economy is looking for. And when you decided to major in psychology as a freshman or sophomore, did you envision going into practice, going into therapy? Did you envision being a professor of psychology someday? Did you envision being the president of the university? No, none of the above. <laughs> you know, my whole thing was I don't do people. And so, you know, I don't know <laughs> why I was doing psychology. So I never thought it would ever be a clinician. I love research and mm. I loved psychological research from the very first moment I learned about Pavla and his dogs. <laughs> and so just sort of being able to organize the world into these nice little two by two tables and able to sort of make statements excited me even at 17 years old. And so that's really what drove me. And I think my professors here saw that and felt like, you know, who else is nerdy enough to really enjoy this stuff? So to just keep me going and keep that excitement going 
you know, sending me or advising that I go straight on into graduate school, where again, the skill set was the thing that really kept me going there. But then I also connected with ideas that were very important to me that actually set me through the rest of my career. So, you know, I had no idea. I'm first generation college. So I'm really looking to the people who were educating me to give me the guidance to where it was I was going. And luckily, my parents supported whatever that guidance was, because really it was their money that allowed me to actually make some of these changes and sort of defer working for a lot of years and just being in graduate school and and getting through all those degrees before I could actually take on a job. But I don't regret any part of the steps along the way. Sure, sure. And when you first went then from being a faculty member, from being a professor as an individual contributor to leading at a university, taking on your first administrative role, your first leadership role, or for that matter, joining the the ranks of the presidency, what's an important leadership lesson that you learned? So one of the first things I was told when I was first invited to the executive table was that if you're invited to the table, you need to be at the table. Mm. So I was always told that there should be no topic or conversation at an executive table where you should feel that you do not have a place to have input. So don't be limited by the particular expertise or position that you're bringing to the table. I was always told that I needed to be a part of every conversation. I was also mentored to understand that if I didn't understand something, I needed to ask questions, right? I didn't have to wait until a whole time and whisper to the side because often if I didn't understand, there may be other people sitting around me who also did not understand. And you can't be a good contributor to problem solving if you don't know what you're solving. And then the third thing that has been really important to me is being told that, you know, my seat at the table was really not necessarily about the position that I held, but the skill sets that I brought. And that as I looked to build my own team, I should really focus in on what people bring to the table above and beyond the expertise of their position. And so I've used those three lessons in every bit of leadership. So as I've moved into different arenas and have been given different tasks to lead large groups, those things have always mattered to me. So I invite people to my table, not necessarily by the position they hold, but by the skills I see that I might need in order to get the task done. I also take a lot of time in investing in people at my table. I want to make sure that everyone understands what it is we're trying to to solve so that I could actually get those input and opinions from around the table. And then I definitely try to make sure that when I see individuals with, you know, really good skills in this sort of administration, that I do what I can in order to create more opportunities for them to grow. Again, it's not about changing people's jobs. It's not about me changing titles for individuals, but more about giving them more opportunity to continue to develop and hone and broaden those skill sets. All those things were done for me. And when I do them for other people, I find that I get the best work and the best cooperation from my team because like me, I believe they feel the investment that the leader is is willing to make in them. And I think that makes the work more satisfying, no matter how hard the work is. I think there's definitely something to that notion of realizing that your supervisor, whoever you report to, 
truly believes in you and that's why they're investing in you. They see that potential and it makes you want to see more for yourself. You want to perform mm-hmm. better for yourself and perform better for them to prove that they were correct, exactly. that you were worth mm-hmm. investing in. And that's, it's a beautiful self-fulfilling prophecy that way that when you step up and do perform, you do develop as per the opportunity given to you, then it shows that you're ready for yet another one. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a great ongoing cycle that just benefits everybody in the long run. I'm curious to the point that you made at the very beginning with regard to if you're invited to the table, you need to be at the table. I think that's a fabulous line. And I hope everybody tattoos it on their forehead backwards so they can read it to themselves every morning looking in the mirror. But with the notion that you included in there regarding asking questions, what advice would you give to people or how did did you have, first of all, any little inner critic, head trash, ugly voice in the back of your head at times that when there was a question that said, you can't be serious, you're not really going to ask that in front of everybody. They'll think you're stupid. You'll sound stupid. You'll just prove your ignorance. All those kinds of self-defeating, self-destructive, naysaying voices in the back. Did you have them, especially when you were first in that role? And how did you silence them or at least learn to ignore them and decide when it was time? to ask the question anyway. So I'm one of those fortunate people who really believe when someone told me there were no stupid questions, that there are no stupid questions, right? So as a faculty member, I always made sure that my students understood that there are no stupid questions, right? Because if you don't understand, you can't learn. So I have always encouraged people to do that. I learned to do that. When I was in graduate school, I had this really difficult statistics class. And it was in my first year and I was in with people I didn't really know. And I thought I was really good at this because that was my thing when I was at Lincoln. And then I run into this area and it's like, I don't even know what he's talking about. But because I've always asked questions and been encouraged to ask questions, I would ask questions. And then later on, when I started to meet more of my classmates, they would say, well, you must really be smart because you know what questions to ask, because we don't even know what's going on. I'm like, I don't know what's going on either. That's why I ask questions, right? And so it made me realize that there are a lot of people who sit and they just don't know what's going on and they are too afraid to ask questions. And so I've always encouraged people to do that. And fortunate for me, when I first sat at the executive table, I had a president who, if I didn't understand what was going on, she would stop the meeting and she would explain to me what the process was. And people would see her do that. And they either wanted to think, oh, well, she just does that because she likes Brenda or she did that because she knew it was important. She would value any input I would have, but I couldn't have any input if I didn't ask questions, if I didn't understand. And so with her encouragement and where she sat, if she didn't think it was a stupid thing to do, At an executive table, then I felt like I had the right sort of, I don't know, the the permission to be able to let people know what I didn't know. Because often when someone explains it to me, then I can understand what input I can offer. And then I'm then very free to give that. And so that's just been a style of mine probably all the way through school that followed me to a table, but it really took being at an executive table where the person who was the head of the table encouraged me to do that and always answered those questions and always made me feel included and not stupid. 
And what I realized was that there were, again, like those classmates of mine in graduate school, other people sitting there who had no idea what she was talking about or what it is she was asking us for. But by me just, you know, being vulnerable enough to ask for the clarifying question, it opened the door for other people. So I encourage it even at my table now. We are grown and we are professionals, but we don't know everything. And when we need someone to explain something to us, there's no harm in asking a question. Yes. All right. So with that, I'm going to use it as a boomerang of sorts. So everybody out there listening who has those concerns, those hesitations, those inner voices telling you, don't ask the question. You're not supposed to ask the question. I'm going to use Dr. Allen's words, President Allen's words, and give you permission out there. And I think you, would you like to join me in, in encouraging everyone and even shoving people out there to go and ask those questions, take the risk, pull the trigger, ask the question, because chances are somebody else at the table has the same one and will thank you for asking it later. Am I off base on this one or do you want to second that motion? No, I think you are absolutely right. If we all did that, I think we'll be in a better space because most often, even in regular life, misunderstandings happen because we don't ask questions, right? We don't exactly know what is being asked of us or, or what's going on. And the only way you know is to ask for clarity. Yes. Um, no harm, no foul, right? Just do it. Right, right. Now, with that, this is going to bring us to another challenge besides the one that we just levied. This is our listener 24-hour influence challenge. And this is your opportunity to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours in order to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? So I've been thinking about this. I think one of the things that I would challenge your listeners to do is to Take some time today and sit down and write a letter to yourself about the three things that you think make up the core of who you are. What are the three things about you that you believe are the things that make a difference to other people? And so write yourself a letter and give yourself your own affirmations and then spend some time after that talking to someone about why those things are so great in you and why they are so important. Too often we we are great people, and I don't mean to, to sort of narrow this, but women often do not toot their own horns, right? We are taught sometimes to be a bit more modest, and there are so many great things that we bring to the table. So again, when we talk about being at a leadership table in order to be there, you also have to be really in tune to what your real inner strengths are. And sometimes you have to sit down and say, you know what, these are the three things that I'm great at. And anybody will benefit from me bringing that to the situation. And when you're clear on what that is, I think you can go out and really provide the kind of influence and needed interactions that you are having on your job or in your family or in your community. Everyone has their instructions. Write the letter to self and acknowledge the three things about you that you believe make the greatest difference to others, starting from there and then opening the conversation after that point. Did I get that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right. Get those pens ready or the typewriter or your tablets or whatever device you like. And I'm going to even go out on the limb and say you could do it orally. Have that voice memo app, open it up and just talk to yourself if you're somebody who mm -hmm. tends to dictate and I think better when orally flowing rather than, uh, than just in pen. I think any medium works in this case if it helps just to get it done right. as a start. Mm -hmm. Now, with that, let's move on to something that perhaps hasn't 
always been as perfect and smooth and successful. Give us an example of a communication-related mistake that you've made. And if you had or could have a do-over, what did it sound like? So I first want to say that even in my job, we make communication mistakes all the time. And we often can't have a do-over. And so the opportunity to have a do-over, I think, even when I don't have the opportunity to have a do-over, I like to do a debrief with myself to say, mm. Mm, that didn't go quite so well. How would I do that differently the next time? Okay. So I have another example. Last year, we had a, a very tragic incident on our campus and it caused a, just a lot of hurt in the community. And so one of the things that I know as a psychologist is that when crazy things happen around you, sometimes the best way to get your life back is to do the things that are normal in your life, right? So so when you said there was a tragic incident, can you be more specific about the nature of it? Yeah. So it's, you know, headline news. But last year, we actually had a student who was killed on our campus. Oh, that's such a shame. And, you know, so that's just hard for everyone. Mm. Hard for the students, hard for the faculty, hard for for everyone. And then there's me left to try to manage everything. And so in trying to send a message to the campus, you know, wanted to acknowledge this young man's life, wanted to acknowledge how much it was affecting our community, but at the same time, wanted to help students also think about a path towards healing, right? What I realized is that I was looking at healing way more quickly than they were ready to think about that. Mm. So I used a phrase like, you know, one of the things we want to do, because it was a tragic event that was sort of forced upon us, right? And it throws your whole community off. And so the psychologist in me says, you know, you want to grab back as much normal in your life as you can. And so I used that word, right? I just put that in the context of everything else, but they read nothing else. All they saw was, I said, you know, you want to grab back a little bit more of that normalcy that you have, right? And so what I realized is that that one word for me is really was my way of dealing with tragedy, right? So for me, the first thing I want to do is sort of get myself back in the space where I need to be so I can think and move forward, but that not everyone manages it in the same way. And so I just really didn't think about students and where they are in their own mental and emotional and developmental stages, right? So, you know, I'm at the point where I've dealt with death a lot, dealt with a whole bunch. But when I was younger, how did I process that, right? So I didn't take their perspective. And so just that one, you know, sentence that says, you know, sometimes you have to grab back some of the normalcy in your life that, you know, foolishness takes you away from was very offensive. And so, you know, there is no do-over for that because, you know, the message went out and I realized after it went out, while I thought it was giving good advice, it was taken as being insensitive. And so what I do is own that. I own the language. I own that. I was thinking about it from how I manage tragedy and not how the larger community that I'm responsible for might come at that. Which means now I think very carefully when I compose something to make sure that it's not just how I do it, right? Because my way is not the only way. And so sometimes I'm very good at that and sometimes I'm not so good at that. And I have to be really very aware of my communication style of whether or not I'm sort of 
just giving my own advice or whether or not I'm really thinking in the diverse manner of the community that I'm serving. So if you could go back and have that initial mass communication with the full population of the university, what would you have said to them instead? What would have been the instruction, either one line of it or an overall summary, instead of go back and find that some piece of normalcy and mm-hmm. anchor onto that? What else? What would the different instruction have been? I think I would have said to people that we want to give them the time to find a way to manage yourself through the grief we were all feeling. And that, you know, if there were things that people needed, which we eventually did, please, you know, reach out and let us know. So in the context of having, you know, grief counselors on campus and other things that we were responding to, rather than making that the end of it, really asking for more suggestions or inviting people to really be able to say, I need this, I need that, and then responding to that. So I would have invited them to that first, as opposed to, you know, saying, they perceived it as me saying, just move on, right? Mm. Which was not my intent, of course. but that's how it was heard. Of course. And so I had to acknowledge that perception. And, you know, so everything that went out after that just said, here are some things we do have, but if there are other things that you need, please let us know. It's so hard because no one wants to hear what the intention was if they if oh. the perception is is reality. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a hard, humble pie bite right. to swallow mm-hmm. from time to time or more frequently for that matter. But what I'm hearing, and tell me if I'm interpreting this correctly, I think it's a, a great lesson for all of us is that in version one, it was advice on how to fix a problem in some ways, hold on to something, find some normalcy, find a way to anchor yourself and for comfort, et cetera, versus version two, which was about taking the time to process and grieve in whatever way you need and know that we are here for you with a general open invitation. That's approaching it more from the perspective of just open empathy, Mm -hmm. acknowledging Mm -hmm. Differences, needs, emotions, et cetera, not from the perspective of let me try to fix this for you or try to fix this. Does that sound like an accurate interpretation of the the angle difference between the two? Mm-hmm. I think yeah, you're exactly right. Right. Straight on. And I think that's something that so many of us get stuck on, you know, where someone is hurting, someone is struggling and we want to help. But mm-hmm. help comes across often as fixing Fixing-y. as opposed to empathizing, which at the very least should more often than not be a a precursor Mm -hmm. to the fixing if someone does genuinely need or otherwise want and ideally request help with the fixing. And it's funny because I remember back in, gosh, the 90s, I guess, early 90s, when John Gray's books came out about Mars and Venus and all that, Mm -hmm. and he drew those very sort of gender generalizing lines about how women wanted to vent just to be heard and to receive empathy in return, and men would often just jump in and try to fix things. And in reading through it, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm a guy. I'm a guy, right. (laughs) I never I had no idea. I was, and honestly, reading through most of that book, and I was, well, a lot younger then, shall we say. And even then, I remember thinking to myself, with every chapter, every page, oh my gosh, I'm such a guy. This is revelatory. Who knew? Mm -hmm. And so that was way before, but nevertheless. Okay. So things to think about start with the empathy, 
pre just launching in with the ways to fix solutions, Mm -hmm. answers to the problem, et cetera. Great advice applicable in every, just about every personal and professional construct and context for that matter. Now, as we're looking into the future in the increasingly hybrid workplace, hybrid hits academia in a way that's different from the way that it hits corporate America, for example. In doing that, and I'm sure your pendulum has swung back and forth in many ways like everybody else's, but nowadays, what's one of your main concerns or pet peeves and what's your ideal solution? I think it's even more complicated in a liberal arts environment. So remember, we are this liberal arts institution where our whole approach to education is high touch, high, you know, engagement, you know, much of what I learned I could do and how I can do it. I learned from being on campus, right? So the place itself is significant in the education. And so one of the things that happened during COVID is that we were able to put courses online and that was, you know, it took some work, but we we were able to do it. And in some cases, we even put other experiences online. So we even had students who did internships online, just virtual internships. Mm-hmm. But when we get back to the core of who we are and what we do, and why we've been so effective for, you know, going on 200 years now, is this high-touch environment where we bring individuals together, where they are interacting in class, they're interacting outside the classroom, we're marrying the curriculum and the co-curricula. And so it's very hard to do that hybrid. But nonetheless, you know, some of the people in their work got very sort of used to and comfortable in doing things in the hybrid situation. So getting people to understand that not every context is the same. There are some jobs, even in higher education, that can be done in a remote fashion. And there are many other jobs that cannot. And just really getting in this environment, people to really look at the data. What really worked, right? Where did we get the best impact from being in a hybrid situation? And where did we just get through, right? And so we looked at some of the learning data, and I think this is national. You know, a bunch of institutions have looked at their their data, and we see that students had a lot of learning loss. So they had school, but it's not the same, right? Mm. There are some people who thrive in that online environment, and there are other people probably because of social, emotional, developmental stages of their brain and what they need, you know, got through school, but we are playing catch up for them. And then there are places where we found that "Mm, you never have to come to work, right? You can do it all from home because remote worked. And so the conversation around here is when is it appropriate and when is it not appropriate to do something in a hybrid fashion if you had the choice of doing it either face-to-face or hybrid? And what's your answer for someone, forgive me for interrupting, when someone then wants to do something in a more hybrid way and is told, no, for your role, you need to come here. If the gut reflex is about what is fair, what is equitable, why did they get to do this and I don't. How do you respond to that in a way that allows them to be able to hear it? Because the fairness card, the equity card is such a weighted Mm. card. It's such a heavy word. And so laden with, you got to be careful around these kinds of topics. You want to be sensitive, but there are realities to deal with as well. How do you acknowledge the equity slash fairness piece when not all jobs can be done from home? Equity is about role, right? And so there are some roles that are perfectly suited 
to do things and, you know, to do work in a virtual space. And there are other roles that are not. And so I, for me, my argument always, or my answer goes back to mission. What is our mission? And, and what is it that we endeavor to do? And how is it that we say that we impact the students' lives and development? And how do we do that? And so, you know, I go back to, and talking to faculty, I go back to, well, this is what we do. And there are places where you can be totally online as a faculty member, but that's not Lincoln University right now. And so we have to think about it like that. And then I have data to support why it's not the best modality for us. And so you have to be, I think, very patient in the conversation. It does come up as equity. In some cases, we have individuals, because of the nature of the pandemic, are at greater risk to come back. And so you can make those decisions on a case-by-case basis. But the goal is to be as normal in our mission as possible as the science allows us. And having that conversation always, for me, goes back to mission. And, you know, this is what we do. This is how we do it. We try to make adjustments for individuals along the way, but our hallmark is this high-touch, highly interactive environment. And you can't recreate that fully in remote situations. I had a conversation just the other day with um, an alum who wanted to show me the metaverse and how he could make the metaverse just like being on campus. And I'm convinced that that's not true. Because I'm looking at the data, right? I'm looking at all the ways that we were not successful in our need to pivot to online. Great platforms, great opportunities. But the students we serve seem to thrive so much better in an environment where they are surrounded by a campus, places, technology, individuals, students, faculty, and staff who come together to impart the growth that we look for at commencement, right? And so we do it well in that way. And and some schools do it good in other ways, but that's not us. And so that's my conversation. Yes, it's a difficult one to have, but there is a distinction in nature of the experience that you're providing to your ultimate end users in the end. Mm -hmm. So with that, thank you so much, President Allen, for joining us today. How can people learn about more about you and about Lincoln University? So yes, just look us up. We're at Lincoln University, www.lincolnuniversity.edu. And again, if you ever want to come to have a visit or check us out, come to a football game, basketball game, lecture, concert, you can always write me at the office of the president at lincoln.edu. And remind everybody where Lincoln University is geographically. So Lincoln University sits in a nice little corner of Southern Chester County, surrounded by rolling hills. Outside of Philadelphia. Outside of, well, yes, way outside of Philadelphia, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a national slash international podcast, so we want to make sure that uh, for those who are not familiar with it, that they know where to come to find out a little bit more of amazing American history and American future for that matter. So thank you again for joining us today. And to everybody else, thank you for tuning in. As always, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite platform of choice so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, 
and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Socola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.